Right. Well, we're going to jump right in. Um, been doing a lot this morning already. Um, hello to everyone that's watching on the video venue. You're probably on a sugar coma, and so you're at home. The rest of us had coffee, and we got here. So today we're in part 84 of the Being Jesus series. We've been doing this for a while. We're going to be walking through John 15, the second half of John 15, verses 18 to 27, and then kind of the first half of John 16. In your Bibles that are in the seats, it's going to be page 902. But let me start with this. I want to start with a phrase that I believe every single person in this room is familiar with. It's the phrase, what have I gotten myself into? Does that strike a bell? It's not something you tend to say out loud. You more mumble it under your breath. It might be a relationship that you entered into and you were like, this girl's crazy. Or this guy is, ah. It might be a friendship that demands a lot. It might be some type of commitment that you entered into. Like you told your friend you would run a marathon with them. And four miles in, you're like, what have I got myself into? It might be an investment. It might be some infamous task, like you decided to clean out your garage. And you went, why did I choose this? Um, One TV show that I think epitomizes that statement is the TV show I Love Lucy. Because she always was getting herself into that. And one episode that comes to my mind is the freezer, where her and Ethel go in to get a, a giant freezer, and they get meat to put in the freezer, and they end up with 700 pounds of meat. And they're sitting there going, what have we gotten ourselves into? And today our text is going to address this phrase. Because from one side, a number of weeks back, it addressed the positive side of what we've gotten ourselves into. John 15, 1 to 17 that we have entered into a close, abiding relationship with Jesus. We are united with the vine. Now that's the good part. Today we're going to see that in that unity, we learn that we are united with the same hostility, the same rivalry, the same hatred, the same assertiveness that Jesus experienced. And we're reminded again of the reality that following Jesus costs something. And it may cost life itself. If we are not following him, then we are siding with another side. And so in a a way, he's going to address a couple teams, if you will. And we're going to learn, what are we to expect? What have we gotten ourselves into? But even better, he's going to go on to talk about what are we equipped with? The spirit. We have a co-witness. We have a co-pilot. And that's why you're filling the blank on your sheet today is that Jesus equips his team with what they need. And we're going to be talking about this hatred, and we're going to be talking about this persecution. And I want you to hold on to the, but what about, or the what if questions that are going to come up, because what we're going to talk about is messy, and it's muddled, and we don't know how to live within our Western freedom of religion, freedom of speech culture with the things that Jesus will say. So let's look at the text starting John 15, verses 18 to 25. Jesus says in verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And so Jesus starts at that reality that any true hostility, any true hatred, any true aversion, and not hatred or hostility from you being an absolute jerk to people, or being totally judgmental to people, but any type of hatred and hostility that you experience, you are experiencing... Because of the unity you have with Jesus. It comes from their hatred of him. And where is it coming from? He doesn't mark individuals. He says it's hatred from the world. 
That comes up six times in these first two verses. It's this word cosmos. comes from the word, we know it as cosmopolitan. A magazine we all try to avoid, or you should. And it means citizen of the world, right? And cosmos is a culture that is in rebellion and is indifferent to God. Not simply on moral lines, but on authority lines. They don't want him to rule. So this is everything that makes up the culture, the plans, the organizations, the activities, the philosophies, the values, everything that belongs to a society, a world without God. He says, that is the thing that hates you. And I want to kind of start at the forefront of this to talk about how what this automatically raises is your approach to how you view humanity. Because every one of us has a viewpoint that we take on humanity. We look even have a, we either have a high viewpoint of humanity where we look at a lot of potential and a lot of good that can come out of it, or we have a low view of humanity. And we just see the destructiveness and the selfishness and the evil. People throughout history have gone up and down on their view of humanity, and this text raises that. But we have to look at why does it hate Jesus? Because he testifies, he bears witness against their deeds, against their values, against their mentality, against their manner of life. And it's not just that they hate him once. When it says that there's a hatred, it means a fixed attitude towards Jesus. Let's go on to verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And that's where you see this term come out that's very much like teens, talking about what is the place, who are the people that you conform to, right? And we know the famous verse, Romans 12, be no longer conformed to the patterns of this world, right? He's saying, what have you been trained in, right? And when I think of teams, I think of people that are very zealous and passionate about the team they support. And there's a that lady on our staff named Alicia Brewer, and she is the most hardcore Giants fan you will ever meet in your life. Everything she owns and wears is black and orange. Everything she makes is black and orange, right? It doesn't matter if it's food. It doesn't matter if she's crocheting something. It becomes black and orange. Now, when he's talking about people that are on a team, people that are focusing on what they're of, if Alicia Brewer were to one day take off all her Giants gear and put on Dodgers gear, heresy! Right? That's exactly what the world does when they see somebody take off all the values, all the systems, all the philosophies, and go, no, this is my king. This is my world. That's how grave it is. There's another way that it's been said, using a little bit more of a, of a king um, and rebel type of picture. It says, former rebels who have been won back to loving allegiance of their rightful king are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. This makes us go, how, how fully and how honestly can we admit where we're at? Are we of the world? Or does the world cast us out because we are not of them? How do we live in this culture and limit the penetration of its values into our life, right? This is those questions that I'm saying, hold back on the, but what about and what if? And Jesus makes it really clear. He goes, you have been chosen out 
This isn't just a preference that you chose. You have been chosen. You have been elected. And you've been chosen for a different purpose and a different distinctive life. There's a great video that you should watch at one point. It's by uh, now the leader of Fuller Seminary called Mark Laverton. And it's a, it's a message that he does on what the church is really in in Western America. And it's this idea that we are no longer in the Acts context of church. He says that we are in the book of Daniel. We are a church in exile where no one recognizes the symbols. No one recognizes the God. No one recognizes and you are having to live a distinctive and angular life in order to show who is master and king. I encourage you to look it up. Jesus says, you used to belong to the world, but you have been chosen out to a different identity. You identify with another. You are not of their mindset. And you start seeing that this standing out is going to have a cost. And that cost makes it hard. And so we justify and we argue for relevancy. We argue for blending in because we go, no, I can make it work. But just because we're hated does not mean that we can't be persuasive. True greatness and influence comes from what you will stand for despite the cost. It's not about how popular or dominant it may be. And that makes me raise the question, and we're not going to answer it. I just want you to stir on it. Will Christianity ever be the majority? Why are we fighting for that? Is that the best thing? I'm going to leave that for Brian Kiley to talk about next week. <laughs> Verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And he's going back into chapter 13 when in the upper room, he started washing his disciples' feet. And he says, in the same way I humbled myself as a servant, that's verse 16 of chapter 13, I also submit and I humble myself to the persecution. So in the same way, you will follow my model and humble yourself you will also have to be persecuted as I was. You are not above him. And you will not be able to avoid that hatred or that persecution. You're not going to be able to find a relevant balance. You will experience what he experiences. Because Jesus knew both in his day and the time of the apostles and forever and ever, people will divide around his word. They will divide around us as much as they divided around him. But he gives a little bit of hope. He says, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Some, and perhaps many, will heed the message. Not all will engage with the reality of this hatred. You will see transformation happen. And that's why you keep living that distinctive life, following Jesus and bearing witness to him again and again and again. Now, as we keep talking about this, I want you to kind of put another thing in the back of your mind. I'm putting a lot of things in your brain right now. When you start talking through this, and I know you're wrestling with, well, yeah, but can't you, but what about every time we try to look to these passages and we try to interpret them from our cultural context, I want you to automatically expand that out and go, but how would I talk about that to a Christian globally? Because we live in a nation with freedom of religion and freedom of speech. These things of hatred and persecution don't feel like a reality, despite the things you might see us all post on Facebook. So I want you to think about Christians that are being killed or threatened by ISIS. Christians in Muslim nations. Christians in communist, still dominant nations. North Korea, right? I don't care where 
But we have to think about when you start giving your reason and your excuse, you automatically have to open that door much broader than our cultural concepts. But let's keep going. Verse 21. Jesus says, But all these things they will do to you will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and they have hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. And so he takes it automatically to a knowing God and knowing him, having an accurate concept of. We just talked about this in our high school ministry over the last six weeks. We did a series called God is Not. And we were trying to unpack with the high school students this ideas, these ideas that we have about God. And we have misconceptions about God, that God is like an imperfect parent, that God is like a horrific judge, that God is like a jolly old man with a beard, that God is a disappointment. And you have to unpack those because those are improper concepts of who he is. And Jesus is saying, these people, they don't know me nor my father. They have a willing ignorance. In the beginning of John, he says, the world, the cosmos, knew him not. And so Jesus is saying, it's not about you. The problem is not about you. It's about who I am. And that's where verses 22 and 24 give this, this parallel line with emphasis, where he says, if I had not come and spoke to them, given my revealed word, if I had not done among them works that no one else did, then they now have no excuse. They would not be guilty of sin. And so Jesus is stripping back the excuses because his existence, his words, his work are God's final flawless action of love in the world. And when that happens, something has to happen in the human heart. It automatically positions someone in some way. It reveals what their preference and what their leadership is about. And Jesus is saying, I have spoken, I have lived, I have done miraculous works. And when you look through the Gospel of John, that's one of his emphasis. He says, they have chosen rejection of this, of both revelation and powerful work. And it's a pretty clear rejection. Another part of the Gospel, what does Jesus say about Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum? He says, it would be better for Tyr, Sidon, and Sodom in the final judgment than for you because of the words and the works that have been shown to you. There's an obligation to respond in some form to the works and the revelation of Jesus. He keeps talking, verses 23 and 24, about, again, they have seen and hated both me and the Father. And he's still trying to make that point that Jesus, he exposes sin and filth and selfishness, and yet he is the one that provides the remedy but if people hate that exposure and they deny a need for a remedy, hatred will continue. And like he says in verse 25, that fulfills their law, to hate without cause. They live up to the Old Testament example of who they are and what they're doing. And that's a quote directly from Psalm 69, verse 4. It reflects a passage where David, talking about his zeal for the Lord, about his humility, about conforming himself to God, is being hated without cause. And how much more is the Messiah of the line of David going to be hated if David experienced that as a king that was after God's own heart? 
And so what this kind of ends up showing you is it shows you that this hostility, this hatred, this persecution, it's not going to be just. A lot of us, we stand up and we resist anything that presses in on Christianity because we go, it's unjust. It's not going to be just. It's going to be unfounded. It's going to be irrational. It's going to be undeserved. And it's going to seem mysterious. And so our response to it cannot be the same as other things we react to because it's aimed at Jesus. Now, out of all this that we're talking about, the goal is not to be hated. The goal is not to cause antagonism. I'm not challenging you to go out and go, let's disrespect Rockland today! I don't want you to go out and be more judgmental. I don't want you to go out and be more critical. The call is how do we live up and into the true nature of a follower of Jesus? Knowing what is expected. Now, we're going to skip over verses 26 to 27. We'll come back to it. But I want you to jump to chapter 16, verses 1 to 2. Jesus keeps going. And he says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. I'm telling you now what to expect. He says, they will put you out of the synagogue. Now you're like, great, great. I, I don't go to the synagogue, so I'm already ahead. When he says they'll kick you out of the synagogue, he's making that the priority of concern before he talks about them killing you. Why does he do that? Because exclusion is the greater danger that Jesus sees of people falling away because exclusion messes with our identity. It messes with our perception of ourselves. If somebody is kicked out of the synagogue in the Jewish culture, you feel isolated from anything that connects you with God. If our culture excluded you from aspects of the culture, didn't give you access to media, didn't give you access to technology, they increased prices for you, that exclusion would mess with our identity and we would get so frustrated. It happens already in the book of John. John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. Remember, the guy goes into the leaders with, at the synagogue and he's telling them what happened and they're like, no, no, you can't be Jesus. You, don't, you can't confess his name. They bring his parents in to try to say, hey, tell us that he w wasn't born blind and that this is just something that kind of recently happened. And it says that they don't give a clear answer because they feared being cast out of the synagogue. In the end, when the guy won't admit and say what they want him to say, they cast him out. So this is already a reality happening that John has fleshed out. But this fear of exclusion is powerful. But for us, it's a fear of being excluded from the world. They want to remove us from a place to testify of Jesus. But then he goes on and he says, The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. For the disciples, that was a specific Jewish attack. And if you look at Paul in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 26 and in the beginning of Galatians chapter 1 verses 13 to 14, he talks about this reality that he thought he was doing what God wanted. He says, I'm convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. I violently persecuted the Christians because of my zeal. See, this was something that was real. People thought they were doing righteous good things. They were deluded. But the killing of these saints became an offering up to God. And so again, Jesus is making it clear. As his kingdom comes into being, the power of the world will be redirected to the followers of Jesus. And Jesus is worried about that because he knows that, intent, that type of intensity and opposition was going to cause them maybe to stumble or fall away. And it's literally in the Greek, this word for scandalized. 
that they would be scandalized. Something that would trip them up from remaining in Jesus' company. And you've got to think about what it started with. This chapter 15 started with remaining in the vine. Jesus says, I'm telling you this so you don't detach yourself from the vine when this happens. I don't want you to be scandalized. He says, you may be put out, you may be killed, or you may cause yourself to withdraw from me. I don't want you to deal with that. So when you take all this, you go, what are we supposed to do with it? Later in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, I long to share in the suffering of Jesus. He says that we, we should be yearning for this. And I like what he does in the rest of that chapter, because after he talks about that, he says, those of us who are mature think in this way. And if you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. And I love that, because he's just like, you need to understand it. And if you don't get it, God will show you. Is persecution and hatred something to be sought? Is that a true sign of your faith and commitment? These are hard questions. If you want to read a couple texts, books on this, there's two good books that give a couple different sides. One is called The Culturally Savvy Christian. I encourage you to read it. It's an easy read. It's good. And there's another one that's a little bit older by a German theologian named, named Richard Niebuhr. And uh, it's called Christ and Culture. Both of those address this issue of do we combat the world? Do we conform to the world? Or do we cocoon from the world? But we have to figure that out. Let me finish with verse 3. He says, And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So he returns to the issue of it's not about you, it's about me. And he says, This is what is going to happen, and an hour will come. But that brings us now to the greater promise. This persecution is undergirded by the reality that Jesus has and does enter into our suffering, for he is the head of the body. And before I even get into the text, you've got to think about when Paul was persecuting Christians and God encountered him on the Damascus Road, what happened? He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Automatically, Jesus was saying, I identify with every person that experiences this hatred, this hostility, this assertiveness, this rivalry, any of it. Let's, let's walk into the rest of uh, John 16. We're going to go back to those verses in John 15, 26 to 27, but you're going to see that you are not a passive victim in this persecution. You do not stand alone. The Spirit dwells with us. He becomes our voice and our guiding example. And that's one of the reasons that the world strikes out at us is because they continually encounter the presence of Jesus among us on earth. So let's read verse 26 and 27. Let's go back to this. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send, you, send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And so Jesus is telling you that there's a coming helper, someone that's sent by him and from the Father, and he is on a mission. So it's not as much about his nature, who he is as the Spirit, but what he is there to do. He's the one that's called the parakletos, the one who comes alongside to help, which is why a lot of translations will say the helper. 
And as Jesus has been on trial, as he has been opposed and condemned, the paraclete comes alongside to bear witness to him as the powerful and merciful one that we are in relation with. He helps continually make the case of Jesus before the world. And he says something really important. He says, I will send him to you. And I'm not going to get caught up on that, but you should go and do a study about that line. Because that is a line that split the church in Europe in the 5th century. If you've ever heard of it, it's called the Filioque Clause. They argued over, who does the Spirit come from? Is he sent from the Father, or is he sent from the Father and the Son? And the West added the line, and the Son, because of this verse. Go look it up. Verse 27, he goes on and he goes, the paraclete's going to come and do his mission, and you also will be bearing witness. You have mission. He's coming to do work, and you are going to do work with him, with the Spirit informing and inspiring and empowering you. The Spirit comes, but he's invisible, and he's not understood to the world, and so he bears witness through us as living mouthpieces. He speaks and he acts through us. It's not you who speaks. It's the Father speaking to the Spirit, speaking to you. So it's about us surrendering into formational encounters with him so that we can obediently bear witness. Augustine, a theologian from the 4th century, he says it so simply and beautifully. He says, because he will speak, you also will speak. He in your hearts, you in words. He by inspiration, you by sounds. And what does Jesus end up saying to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? Power, when, when power from the Holy Spirit comes, you shall be my witnesses. You will go and declare and bear testimony. And the Spirit does more than just tell stories or give facts. He reveals their meaning to people's souls. And it all goes back to Jesus again and again and again. And you notice that his name is called the Spirit of Truth. He's the Spirit of Truth. He's going to testify, and you also will testify. This is not a, we should. This is a, we must talk about Jesus. Because that is what it's all about. And persecution and this hatred becomes a chance to tell about the good news. To provide a rich story and an example in favor of the one who has changed our life. Our job is not to just go and defend ourselves on Facebook to someone. Our job is to tell them why Jesus changes how you experience life. Let's keep going. I'm getting a little excited. Chapter, chapter 16, verses 4 to 6. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled my heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And this is really basic. Jesus is saying, while I was here, the persecution was directed at me. But now that I'm leaving, I need to mention this to you. Although they knew that he was leaving, because he had said it over and over again in chapters 13 and 14 and throughout the rest of the Gospels, they had not sought out where he was going. They were still just caught up on the fact that he was leaving and how that fit into their paradigm of what was supposed to happen. And so they have significant grief over this loss, and that's understandable. And he says, I must go so the helper can come. Now, something really important happened in the 1970s that changed how people illustrated this passage, and it's called Star Wars. 
Because after 1977, people used the Obi-Wan Luke example to explain this, right? Because they said Obi-Wan had to die and go so that he could help Luke for real. And so there's that whole scene where Obi-Wan is fighting. Now, I need to clarify something. Last night at the Saturday service, I was talking so fast that I said Obi-Wan was farting with Darth Vader. And we all lost it for, like, way too long. So anyways, when Obi-Wan's fighting Darth Vader, he gets to this point where he looks over at Luke, and he knows that he has to go. He has to be sacrificed so that he can leave this more powerful influence on Luke. And so he does the whole thing where he brings his lightsaber up, and then Darth Vader hits him, but he kind of, like, disappears. He falls to the ground, and Luke goes, no! And he starts shooting stormtroopers, right? And that leads to the rest of the movies of Obi-Wan going, use the force, Luke. Now, that's a weak example because the Holy Spirit doesn't just come to say, listen to Jesus, Matt. He doesn't just do that with me. He's doing that with thousands upon millions upon tens of millions of people. That expansion goes out a lot farther into what happens. The Spirit has this missional purpose that extends out, and the Spirit's coming marks a new beginning that brings Jesus' work to full expression. So Jesus says, I will send him. Now you have to think about this. When Jesus was on earth, he was localized. He was limited to where he functioned and who he interacted with, and it was impossible for him to communicate with all people equally and at all times. But if he goes and the paraclete comes, the helper, now that spreads out worldwide. Do you see why it's so exciting to have the Spirit of God indwelling you? And that Spirit is something that characterized the kingdom of God even in the Old Testament. And we don't have time to go through all the verses, but if you want to write them down, Isaiah 45, sorry, Isaiah 44, verses 1 to 5, Ezekiel 11, 19 to 20, and Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, as well as John 7, 37 and 39. And I'll put these notes up on the cities if you didn't write them down. Those are all verses that talk about the fact that God says, I am going to chisel out your heart of flesh and I will give you a new spirit and I will give you my spirit. That's been a promise before Jesus even came. And now it's coming into fruition. And so Jesus is insisting it's better to be alive now after the coming of the spirit rather than in the time when Jesus was in Galilee. Oh, if I could see him, it would change everything. Jesus is going... No, it's better for you to be dependent on the one I will send. That is better. Okay, we're almost done here. Verses 8 to 11. These last eight verses, going all the way to 15, all tell you more about what the helper does. And these verses, verses 8 to 11, tells you what he does with the world. It says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And you have to realize that this is the one place where the Spirit performs a work for the world, not for Christians, not for those that follow him, for the world. Can the world know these things truly apart from the Spirit? And it says that he convicts them. That's a super hard word to interpret because a lot of people make it just a legal term. A lot of people make it just an intellectual term or a shame-driven term. And that's not all that it is. It's more. Convicts is this idea of revealing and exposing distance and rebellion, but with a challenge to change. Probably the best picture I can give you of it is from the classic story Charles Dickens 
of A Christmas Carol, or if you remember the 1980s version of Scrooge with Bill Murray. The idea that some beings come and they take someone back to what they did, what they are doing, and where it will end up so that their lives will change now. That is what the Spirit is doing. It is taking us along and trying to expose distance and rebellion, but it's saying, change this. I'm trying to show you what you're doing wrong so you can do what's true and what's right. And so it convinces the world of these things, and it gives us three things, right? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And it's trying to portray the true nature of the world, the true nature of Jesus, and the true nature of his victory to the people. That is the gospel. But the message is not only about a better product. It's not just trying to tell people you need a better life than what you have. It's a world that has to see where it stands in the light of Jesus. And so the Spirit must do the revealing work to show the real world what the real Jesus is. And we as the church have to hold on to an honest assessment of the world and show through courageous testimony and distinctive lifestyle what reality is like with Jesus. But it's the Spirit that does the convicting. We attest to the truth of Jesus and that change in in us, but the Spirit does the convicting work, not you, not me. Now concerning sin, convicting concerning sin, it says, because they do not believe in me. This is a stubborn unbelief. The Spirit is stressing the deepest misery and the lostness of sin, but it doesn't focus on their moral imperfections, but on their refusal or their distance from God. And this is one of the reasons we are not to be doing the convicting, because often when we convict people, we focus on their moral imperfections. Let the Spirit do the work of showing them their refusal and their unbelief of God, because we get caught up on the wrong things. The world tends to not believe that it walks in death and it needs to be called out of that condition and have life. Since they don't see the rescue available in Jesus, the Spirit must work on their dire need and their toxic state. He must both reveal and convict. Then it goes on and it says, convicting concerning righteousness because he goes to the Father and will be unseen. The Spirit comes into the lives of the world and he asserts Jesus' righteousness and life tells us about how great and how pure and how right he was and that he entered into the righteousness of the glory of the Father. The Spirit is trying to set these things right. And it's looking at people in the world and saying, yeah, there's plenty of religious righteousness and right doing. And you're going, no, there isn't. People think they are. Jesus tried to reveal how empty it could be and how spurious belief can be. And the Spirit tries to show them that you need to put on the righteousness of Christ and not of your own work. That is what most of Paul's gospel was. Put on the character of Christ. Put on Jesus. That is the only righteousness that you can have. And the Spirit's revealing that. That although Jesus was judged and killed, he was truly who he claimed to be, the righteous Son of God. And the world is missing the way to experience Jesus in his victory and in his justice. But then it also convicts the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. It's trying to show the world that what they have learned of judgment, of discretion, of assessment is wrong and perverse because the one who has influenced and manipulated the false judgment, the liar from the beginning, he has been condemned and defeated. Satan does not show us what life is about anymore because of the cross. 
So the submission to the prince of this world is what led to the rejection of Jesus and his murder. But Satan's cause is lost. A judgment and a sentence has been made. And when Jesus comes, the execution of that sentence will happen. Amen. If he is condemned, all that judgment, all those accusations that he has made are exposed. And so the Spirit must make the judgment of the prince of the world. He must make it aware to all of us so that we may avoid it, so that we may be re-racked and run with him, Jesus Christ. That's some pretty heavy-duty work the Spirit has to do. But it's not his only work. Let's look at these last three verses. What the Helper does. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so Jesus finishes this, and he goes, you know what, I want to say so much more, but you can't handle it. He, the Spirit, the Helper, will guide you in all truth. He will take you on the way. The Counselor is like Jesus, who all throughout his ministry spoke truth and embodied the truth. But after Jesus is resurrected, after Jesus is ascended, what he has declared or revealed would now have a fuller understanding. They would see the context. They would see everything in hindsight. And that understanding involves not just belief, but following after him in conformity to what he established, living out the implications of that truth. So it's not that the Spirit just teaches us how to understand. It's not that the Spirit just teaches us how to come and listen to a sermon. The Spirit teaches us how to obey, how to take this and now do something with it once you walk out those doors. He would conduct them, he would guide them into the unknown future as a guide directs those who follow him in the unfamiliar territory. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You have to guide your kids when they're little to make sure they can go into places that they don't understand. Just the other night, we were at a friend's party, and we had our two-year-old with us, and they had a large backyard with a lot of steps going down to a pool. What are you doing the whole time? You're trying to guide the two-year-old so he does not die. That's what the Spirit does. He tries to guide us. I led a tour in end of August, beginning of September for our church through Israel. I know that work as a tour guide, trying to lead people through a place where they don't know the language, they don't know the places where we're going, they don't know the culture, and me and our Israeli guide and my other friend Richard Rolfing, we had to guide them, and that's hard work. And that's what the Spirit does. But all throughout it, he reminds us that Jesus is the central point of Revelation. That he is God's culminating self-disclosure, God's final self-expression. All revelation that the Spirit brings reaches its climax in Jesus. And so the Spirit keeps unpacking that. And he speaks from what he hears. What he speaks is not new, but it's a continuance of God's message through Jesus already. And so one of the cool things we get is when we read the word like we're doing right now, he illuminates the word. But then he leads us into powerful obedience and action in the Spirit. And he declares to us things that are going to that are going to come. And when we read that, we always think prophecy and future. But part of what he's saying here is he's going, no, anything that happens after Jesus dies on the cross and is resurrected and ascended and the Holy Spirit comes, that is everything that is to come. You are in what is coming. 
You are in what is being right now. And that's what he's trying to tell us. And then it finishes verses 14 and 15. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In the end, what the Spirit does all ends in glory. Pure, exalted worship of our King. And I'm not talking about when we were just standing here singing. That's part of it. And your passion and your zeal in that is beautiful. But it's how you go and worship God after, 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 outside these doors. It's what you're going to do with your spouses, what you're going to do with your kids, what you're going to do at your jobs, what you're going to do on your sports, what you're going to do in your classes. All of that is supposed to lead to glory and exaltation of Jesus Christ. The glorifying peace. Amen. You guys can clap. Jesus' glory is a big deal. Let me finish this all. Last, last paragraph here. This glorifying peace, though, that the Spirit does is key to what we learn here in sermons. It's not just for you to come in here and feel like you get fed, that you grasp more spiritual truths, that you get more intellectual things. In the end, the Spirit's work, His bearing witness, leads us to witness to the encounter with His power and to declare that out. If all we do is sit in seats and get spiritually fed and we do not bear witness, we are not working in tandem with the Spirit. And you guys, I've been guilty of that. I think it's something that a lot of churches get guilty of is we come to be fed. We come to get spiritually charged to feel better when we are called to, not as a should, but as a must, to go and bear witness with our co-witness, the Holy Spirit, who is going to keep bringing it to glorifying Jesus and realizing who he is. And the Spirit's going to do that convicting work with every person we talk to. All we got to do is open our mouths and start doing stuff with our hands. So let me pray for you, and then we'll head out of here and do this. Right? Not just go, that was a great message. We'll go and do this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the king and you are the master. We thank you that you are the one who is righteous, that sits at the right hand of God. We thank you for being one that loves us so much that even after you did your atoning work on the cross and saved our lives and rescued us, that you sent with your Father, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, the one that does mighty and powerful work, the one who convicts the world, who's going to hate us, who's going to show hostility to us. He is the one that speaks. He is the one that pushes and tries to show them the false judgment, the false righteousness, the slavery to sin. God, do more and more of your work. Empower your spirit. God, protect us when we are attacked. You are the Yahweh of the angel armies, the Lord of hosts. And so you can equip us, not just with your spirit, but with angel armies to go with us. And so, God, go with us from this place. And may every single one of us bear witness and testimony to what you have done in our lives. And if we do not feel like you have done anything in our lives, God, encounter us today. Change our lives. Show us your righteousness. Show us your truth. And guide us on the way through unfamiliar territory in a world, Lord, that they don't know you. They don't understand you. And God, use us as your plan and your purpose has always been to do that. And so we love you and we thank you for all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ.
And all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, have a great morning. Please go talk to John and Alicia in the lobby. Hear more about what God's doing in Mexico because they live this out and we live this out. Amen? Amen. Have a great morning.